Good morning. It's nice to look outside, isn't it? This week we got uh, walloped by snow on Monday, and David and Stephanie and my wife and kids were building a snowman, and then as it got, you know, the snow receded throughout the week, the snowman got smaller and smaller, and now I think it's going to be getting bigger and bigger. So um, it's fun to see. Hopefully we can all get out of here safely after church, um, but it's, it's fun just to see the white stuff falling. Um, and we went outside this week, and we didn't lock ourselves in the house, so that's a praise, too. So um, for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Titus, and it's a small little book in the New Testament. You can easily be flipping through your Bible and totally bypass it because it's just three chapters long. There's some famous passages that come out of this book dealing with um, relationships in the home, elders, and we're going to look at that throughout the next few weeks. But as we get started today, we'll look at the first nine verses this morning, and we'll see that most of these section, the bulk of this section, is on leadership, particularly in the church. And we know that this is a big issue. New Village right now is praying for the new leader to come here. Not that that person will save this church, but hopefully he will lead this church well, I like this quote that I was reading this past week on leadership in the church that people oftentimes don't leave churches, they leave bad leadership. They leave because they're disgruntled or there's a conflict or there's a challenge. And so it behooves us as the body to really pray for godly leaders. And then if we are leaders ourselves, to be godly leaders, which will look at the kind of characteristics that um, Titus is told to look for in leaders. Um, Leadership is complex. It's problematic and fraught with risk, which is exactly why it is needed. That's a quote by Robert Clinton. And Paul will address the major issues in this passage dealing with the leader's heart and his character. So as we get ready to go into this, I'd like to just pray and ask for the Spirit's anointing on us and that we'd Um, that I would do a faithful job to teach through this passage well. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures. I thank you for the um, good things it teaches us, that it teaches us, particularly today in the church, to have men that are godly, that have um, a, a wholesomeness to them, that aren't what the world says should be good in men, but what you say should be. And We pray for that protection, Lord, over all of us. We pray for that protection over New Village, particularly in this time, as they search for a new leader for this this flock, Lord. We pray that you would bless them with a person that would meet these qualifications and lead this church well, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we dive into the text, I just want to take a look at the background of what's going on in this letter. And I think that's fun to do. It's actually a fun thing for me to do in my own Bible study. Um, There's some good commentaries even that I recommend to people on this if you're studying for yourself. Um, One that you can buy for just about $30 for the Old Testament and New Testament is called the IVP Bible Commentary. It's pretty easy to access and read and helps you understand what's going on in the passage. And that's one of the ones that I've used in this. So who's writing this book? In verse 1, we see that Paul is the apostle and he's writing this text. He probably wrote this book right after a short, impri- well, a two-year imprisonment in Rome. 
He wrote this around AD 63, which would have been just one year before the massive persecution that Nero would inflict upon the Roman Empire. Paul, if you, you probably know who Paul is, he wrote 25% of the New Testament. He's a significant mover and shaker. He was the person who went and shared the gospel with people, discipled them, and wanted healthy churches left behind. And that's something I think we as Christians should always want to be involved in, and is a healthy church environment. And that's what Paul is telling Titus to solidify, to formulate. But what was Paul's relationship with Titus before this letter? They had actually known each other for at least 15 years by this point. Titus, we don't know how he came to know the Lord, but he was a Greek man, and he came to know the faith, um, came to know Jesus fairly early on in uh, the, the Jesus movement, you could say. He chose not to get circumcised, and then in AD 48, when the big Jerusalem council happened in Acts 15, Titus went with Paul and others to Jerusalem to prove that you could be a Christian without following all the Jewish law, particularly being circumcised. So he had been around Paul for quite a long time. Paul was, or Paul had also used Titus as his uh, kind of diplomatic aid in the first in the Corinthian church. So if you read the book of Corinthians, you think, uh, if you ever think your church is a mess, read the book of Corinthians, and you think, oh my goodness, I, I hope that's not going on in my church now. But it was a severe letter that Paul had written to them, and that would require some, some smoothing over. And Paul sent Titus after that first letter into the Corinthian church, and they responded well. They showed him hospitality, and then Titus went back to Paul where he was at in Ephesus and told him, hey, they, they like me. They accept us. You're, the relationship isn't tarnished. And Titus would go back there and collect a big offering to help with the churches and the, the famine relief at the time. And so Titus was Paul's you know, fixer-upper. He had gone to Corinth to help mend that relationship and save it. He was a good diplomat. And so we could see, oh, okay, so Titus has some proven worth. He's been around Paul for 15 years. It makes sense that you would write a letter encouraging that person to do such a significant task, which was to appoint elders in this church. So where was it that this, this letter is, is occurring? It was in the island of Crete. And what we know of Crete is that Cretans believe that their land was the birthplace of the gods, particularly Zeus. So they had a bit of a, an arrogance to them that thought, hey, we're in divine land and that we are kind of the uh, descendants of that divinity. And so we're better than you. In verse 12, you know, it's kind of a, a, a laughing joke. We see the you know, Cretans, you know, they, what do they call themselves? They call themselves liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And they kind of seem to boast about that, to be okay with being known as these kinds of people. In Greek, the word to be a liar is krestiso, which also could mean to be a Cretan. So to be a Cretan was to be a liar. So it was a difficult environment that Paul was sending Titus to, but by God's grace, there had been enough of a movement of the gospel that there were believers there. And it's a good reminder to us today, wherever we are, God's spirit can certainly go in to those difficult places and work in people's hearts. So when did Cretans first come to know the Lord? 
If you looked at Pentecost in Acts 2, we see that Cretans were among some of the people that were there. They were among some of the first believers, but then we don't know anything else about how the gospel went into their island, which, you know, we think of the word island, well, you're from Long Island, but this island was not small. It was actually twice the size of Long Island, so it was big. It was pretty massive, and so the gospel had went in there, and there was believers enough where we even can assume they're second-generation believers in this 25-year period, but there's no leaders here. So can you imagine what kind of problems or issues that might have if you have a bunch of people that are following the Lord, but they're directionless. They don't have a, a shared vision or um, mission that they're participating in. They don't have a copy of the Bible. Remember, they're just working off the Old Testament at that time because the, the scriptures weren't written and readily available, the, ones, the letters that were there. But the problem in these believers' lives was that the culture had seeped into their, their, um, their environment. And we see that throughout the letter. We see that Paul is saying, hey, these are some things you need to rebuke, Titus. You need to make sure that the people are following the truth. And it has gotten all the way into the family life. That's why we see all the teachings in this book on family life. And so Titus has a difficult job ahead of him to find out uh, who are the qualified people that he needs to help instill in these churches? So let's look at the text now in verse 1. We'll start with the introduction here and see where Paul is going to go with this. This is the longest of Paul's introductions in all the letters that he's written. And we'll start in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ to fulfill the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So in verse 1, you see some titles that Paul has. He, he's taken on this identity. What, what are those two titles that you see there? They're right after his name. He says, Paul, a servant of God, or it may be in your scriptures, God's bond servant. The idea of a servant was uh, the similar idea to being a slave, that Paul knows he's, he has a master, and that master is God, and he's willing to please him. Before Paul came to Christ, he was kind of, uh, he was a learned man. He had a lot of accolades. If you read Philippians 3, you can see that Paul had significant um, names that, that people could recognize him of. But when he came to Christ, he let those all go. And he said it was, it was great that he did, that to, be, to know Christ was worth more than anything he had previously accomplished. And his life changed when he came to be a believer. In Acts 9, we see that his whole life course changed. He was now a slave to God, and his motto was to live is Christ, to die is gain. This idea of being a servant is traced throughout the scriptures. You see it actually in uh, a beautiful passage in Isaiah 42, where it talks about Jesus being the servant of Yahweh, that Jesus, his, the spirit was upon Jesus, and he brought justice to the nations. Jesus wasn't a fighter. 
but one who would not raise his voice. He was gentle and lowly, and his justice would be established throughout the earth. The islands would put their hope in him. Think of the island of Crete, putting their hope in him. He would be a light for the Gentiles and open the eyes of the blind. And Jesus was this, and I think this language is similar to what Paul is trying to say. Look, my life isn't for me anymore. I'm a servant of God. I want to please him. I want to honor him with my life. He also calls himself, after the servant of God title, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that word apostle just is simple, that it means that you're one sent on a mission. And Paul was a, what we say in you know, theology, like a big A, a big apostle. He had revelation. He was sharing with people that was new. That's not what we do, but we reflect on what already was told in the gospel. Paul's message was carrying the weight of God as he went forward. And he's, he's showing that authority here in this beginning part of the letter. And what Jesus says about his disciples, all of them, is in John 17, 18, that I am sending you as apostles into the world. Jesus told us to teach people to obey everything that I command you. So you see Paul's kind of setting up this authority, and he knows who he is, a servant of God, an apostle. For what purpose is, is that? Is that just so Paul can hang out and relax and sit in elders' meetings with, with Titus? No, it was for two things here, it says, that he's to further the faith of God's elect and to further their knowledge of the truth. So if you think about what, it, what would it mean for you to further someone else's faith, well, it can mean a whole host of things. It could mean encouraging them when they're down. It can mean giving them a hug when they're going through difficult times or teaching them truth to help them go forward to reveal the lies that they're believing. But this idea is that these people are chosen by God. That passage in Ephesians that's kind of famous, talking about us being predestined before him. And I love this language that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And all of us as children of God need to be reminded that God has chosen us. He loves us. He's chosen us as his children if we believe in him. And that carries, and that's our identity, but it carries a responsibility that Paul talks about, that furthering the faith of these people and they're furthering their knowledge of the truth. That's a part of this identity that Paul has. The knowledge of the truth that Paul would be furthering is this gospel. He wants the gospel to go forward, and he wants people to know that there is, this is the truth. And in our culture today, we don't like to talk about the truth. We like to talk about my truth, right? And it's kind of, sometimes as Amber and I will share about what we do overseas, people can sometimes be a little bit offended. Uh, Non-believers especially think like, well, how could you, like think you have such an important message that you should go to another country and share that. Like, isn't that arrogant of you? And isn't that foolish of you? But Paul would say, no, this, is, this isn't my truth. This isn't Michael's truth. This is God's truth. And so I can rely and go to the, the higher authority on this and trust 
that his message is true for the people that I'm sharing it with. And I love that Paul talks about this truth that it's eternal and it gives eternal hope. It's been around since the beginning of time. And that that makes your message so much more valuable. If you look in pop culture today or singers, right, what are they? They're trying to evoke you to fulfill like a a pleasure today, whatever that pleasure might be that you want, whether it's power or to be loved or to have something. But that pleasure is never eternal. No, I don't think I've ever heard a pop singer. Maybe they have say that, Okay, if you believe in my message that I'm trying to teach you, it'll give you eternal hope. Now, I, I think all of them would recognize, and if they're right, they would recognize that the most they can give you is a temporary hope. But Paul is saying, this truth that I believe in here is from the beginning of time, and who's, who's put the signature on it? It's God, and God doesn't lie. I love these verses that I, I was just Googling on, what verses on God fulfilling his promises in in Joshua 21.45, Joshua had said at the end of his life, not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. And in Numbers 23.19, God is not human that he should lie. And Hebrews 6.18, it's impossible for God to lie And we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. And so while we are people who might make promises, how many people get married in America? You make a promise to, you know, be with that person in sickness and in death. And then what the seven year itch happens by on average in America. And then what, what what's the number one reason why people get divorced? Well, we have irreconcilable differences. Right? Our differences are too great. We can't fix them. But thinking about God, and our di- we have differences with God, but God says, no, I'm not going to irreconcilably uh, go away from you. He's going to reconcile between us and make that difference go away through his love for us. And that's what we see throughout all of Paul's ministry in showing that gospel message to people. He has been authenticated in his ministry and he's passing that authority on to Titus. And he ends his greeting in verse 4 with grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And these can be words that we can so easily lose the deep meaning on grace and peace, that grace, that kindness that God has shown to us. And that, therefore, people who have received that grace ought to be gracious and kind and loving to others. That we live in that kind of new ethic that we show love to people who are even our worst enemies. And that peace, that eternal hope that is given to us through God. We want to be people who show that peace to others. So that's the introduction that Paul starts with, showing that he's got this ministry that's founded on God, a God who doesn't lie, a God who is eternally hopeful. He's promised this hope from the beginning of time, and he's writing to Titus. And the reason he writes to Titus is in verse 5. He says, The reason that I left you in Crete was so that you would put in order what was left unfinished, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So remember, Crete is not a small island. It's twice the size of your, of, of your homeland, Long Island here. 
So how would Titus organize these meetings? It's interesting, you know, to think about how would you organize a meeting with all these different believers in Long Island today? Well, you could easily jump on your computer and start saying, hey, you know, anyone free to Zoom next Monday at 2 p.m.? Or, you know, can we meet for a coffee at this time? But Titus would have to go to these people, right? He'd have to go and sit down and explain this letter and say, hey, look, Paul is an important leader in the church, and he said these, these things about having a leader among you, and it would require that teaching that Titus would have. It seems quite natural and organic, and I like that much more than Zoom calls today. But Titus is going to have to do this. And in today's global age, you can easily Google, right, fallen Christian leader, and we see time and time again these things happen. And if you are a believer, you have to continually almost get used to the fact that this will continue to happen in our lives. But it never takes away from the truth of the message that those people might have preached. Robert Clinton, the guy I mentioned earlier, he had studied the whole Bible and looking for leaders in the Bible. And he studied over 3,500 different examples of leaders throughout the scriptures and how many percent do you think were ended up in failure out of that 3,500? It was 33% leaders uh, finished well. So two-thirds were people that fall, fell for various reasons he gives. He gives six reasons, but we're not going to get into that today. And so it's so important that we really pray for our leaders in the church today and really take this seriously, the people that we want to lead the church. And these are things that as we're going through this list of characteristics, I want you also to look at this list and say, man, I, I struggle in that area. I want to grow in that area. And so let's take a look. I'll divide it up into four different sections throughout the characteristics. But verse six, it says, an elder should be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable and one who loves what is good, who's self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must firmly hold to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And I want to take a look at this in four different sections, the, the kind of characteristics that are required. We, as you see this, you can see easily that it's character over skills that Paul is talking about as the necessary uh, requirements for leadership in the church. And I love what one of my seminary professors, he says, it takes more than character to lead, but without character, no one will lead well. And so he's broken these characteristics down. The first one is for character formation, that the leader would be someone who's been formed by Christ, been really walking with them. And it's not in this passage, but in the Timothy 3 passage that it talks about the believer and elder would not be a new believer. They've been someone who's been formed by Christ. They've been walking with him. They've been shaped by him. And when you get to that 
point, you could potentially be the one to fulfill this first requirement, which is that you're blameless. You're above reproach. Now, what does that exactly mean? That, that means that if you were to be tried, you're put on a trial, there'd be nothing like significant that would stick with you. That doesn't mean that you're not a sinner, that you don't struggle with things, but there'd be no significant glaring like, uh, hey, what's it, Pastor Josh? You know, he's, he wants to be a church, but in his previous life, he murdered someone. You know, uh, well, maybe we don't want him to be pastor of the Church of New Village anymore. But, okay, maybe sometimes uh, an elder might struggle with anger or frustration, and, but they're making progress in that, right? These are things that would be, could be acceptable depending on the situation, right? But they're not people who you could say, my goodness, like, that guy is a horrendous person, and how could they lead the church then? And what kind of reputation would that bring to our church from within and without? So from within the church and outside the church, this person should not have a, uh, a there's no red flags that are apparent in their life. The second thing I, I love is uh, regarding the family life. And my dad has this saying that he said for years, he said, you never really know a person till you live with them. And I think that's very true. And um, when we host a lot in our host country, you know, we host people in our house oftentimes for two, three days at a time, sometimes longer. And it's really when you have someone who sleeps just 10, 15 feet away from you that you get to know them a lot better, right? Their quirks, their habits. And this is what the scripture is saying is that this elder should have a good family life. And particularly it says here that a man should be faithful to his wife, right? There's no stumbling in pornography. There's no um, flirting with other women, being promiscuous. That's, that's not okay. That person should not be an elder. And just, I, I feel it is important to make a comment here on gender because the scripture talks about a man being faithful to his wife. And so we get the idea that this is for men to be in this position. And I've I've read a lot and studied a lot on this subject because some of this can actually bother me sometimes, right? Why does God call it to be men as elders of the church and not women? And so I want to just kind of just give you my quick thoughts on that. If the, there's two terms that you've probably heard. One is complementarian and one is egalitarian. A complementarian would believe that, you know, men and women are equal in God's sight, but that they have different roles in the church and at home. And egalitarian would say, yeah, they also are equal in God's sight, and depend, God gifts those people, um, gifts both genders the same, and they can have equal roles in the home and at church. I would call myself probably more on this passage in Titus and 1 Timothy uh, 3, I would call myself a broad complementarian. And what I believe the scripture is teaching from this passage and others is that the role of eldership and pastorship is for men. But I would caveat that oftentimes we don't, as men in leadership, listen to the voices of women at, uh, very well in the church. And we don't take their thoughts and opinions into consideration um, enough. And I've seen this. It can be quite abused in some church settings. I don't know what it is here. But I can see sometimes where um, we, we don't allow women much of a voice at all. And I do not think that is what the scripture says. Paul himself worked very closely with women in ministry. 
um, and in some significant roles. If you looked at Romans 16, he used, uh, he worked with Phoebe to give the book of Romans to Phoebe to take to Rome. And can you imagine that task of saying, hey, Phoebe, what does Paul mean when he says this in Romans, you know, 3? Well, they didn't have chapters back then. But she would be have to interpret that book for them, knowing Paul's thoughts and heart. And uh, Priscilla, we see she is a, an effective colleague with Paul in the past, um, even teaching other men apologetics alongside of her husband. And so I think you, you should really, if this passage does bother you in gender, I would really recommend you study this and really pray and put it before the Lord. And I can sympathize with you, especially if you are a woman, and saying, I really do struggle with that because God has given women some excellent leadership gifts that, that we should very much listen to and strongly consider in the church. So the, the elder is to be faithful to his wife, but then also, how does he relate to his children if he does have them? And it says in, uh, let's see, what verse is that? Uh, excuse me, verse 6. That a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, different translations tackle that word believe differently. Some would tackle it and say that it means that they're faithful that the children, the, the main emphasis is that the children of the home aren't running around like crazy and then they could be, uh, the people outside could view that man and as not being a good parental figure in the home, but the children are people that listen and respect their father and their mother. And so it's this idea that the parent has a responsibility, right? We can't, I can't make my child believe in the gospel and become a believer, but I should parent in such a way that my house is not chaotic, where my children especially are running around doing whatever you, they want. And if you're a parent, you know that that does happen, and we need to work through those things. And that is a challenge um, in many situations. Hopefully by the end of the sermon, the kids aren't going crazy uh, here. Then you say, oh, that guy shouldn't be an elder. Um, but that they're listening to their father and mother in the house. The next topic is that they elders are healthy in their relationships with the, with others. So they're people who've been shaped by Christ. They're walking well in maturity. And they also are relationally healthy. They're not people who... Um, are uh, domineering, trying to use power over others, right? They're people that you might be able to enjoy being around. You should be able to enjoy being around them. And it calls uh, them, Paul says, that they are to steward God's household. And so you think if if you have a, a, a I hate using the word boss, but if you have a, a leader in the family and they can't really manage relational harm, harmony very well, then it's hard for them to still be in leader and to be respected as that leader. And conflict will happen, and sometimes we all end up on the wrong, the challenging side of conflict. So I don't want to say that where conflict is non-existent, that's where the good elder is. But they should hopefully try to manage that conflict, manage relational issues well. So being a, a good steward, just let's put that in the uh, practical example of a, a babysitter. A babysitter is like a, a temporary steward of your house, right? You hire a babysitter to do a good job, to not steal from you, to not break a bunch of things in your house, and to also protect the humans that are there, your children, right? 
But if you come back and you find out that that babysitter has done a poor job at that, they've stolen your money or they, you know, carelessly broke something in the house or they abused your children, you would be furious. You would say, I trusted you with that and you did a terrible job, right? You won't be hired again to continue on in that position. And the elder is a steward of God's house. In Hebrews 13, 7, it says that church leaders will give an account to God for their ministry. And previously in that verse, it says, don't, don't make their lives challenging. It's so easy to do that, right? To make the lives of the elders challenging in your situation. We need to pray for them and, and kindly bring up issues that are on our hearts and minds rather than constant critique because they will give an account to the Lord. Ultimately, they are responsible. And so the elders should kind of live in a little bit of, of good, healthy fear that I am supposed to come back to the Lord and share what I have done with this responsibility, this stewardship. They are hospitable people, it also says. that they. What this word means is actually they are loving to strangers. They're kind to people that come into their presence. I loved uh, a teaching I heard years ago by Dwayne Elmer. He talked about hospitality. Well, what's the word that you see in that is hospital. When people go to a hospital sick, they want to come out of that hospital better than they went in, right? You don't want to come out worse than when you go in. And that should be the presence that we also have, that when people come into our presence, they might come in in one way and they go out better as a result. Hopefully we're not frustrating people and they come into my presence and then say, oh, I can't stand that guy. My goodness, he makes me so mad and frustrated. But there's a sort of blessing that you seek to create and to be to people who are in your presence. People shouldn't be afraid to approach you as an elder. And that, you, you might have a bad day. We all have bad days. But I'm talking about over the long haul, you should be a hospitable person. The last thing in this section is that they are people who are growing in their walk with Christ. And that helps them relationally with others, obviously. That they're disciplined in verse 8. They're holy. They're seeking, and what I take out of that is they're seeking to grow. They're seeking to be learners themselves. They're not okay with where they're at, but they want to get better. They want to improve in how to relationally connect with people. Um, something on my radar these days is, is emotional intelligence. And reading some books on that really helps you to understand, hey, what are the emotions that I have? And how do, how do I handle those with others? Do I control those emotions? And can I, when I can sense that other people are having challenging times, do I relate well to them? Or do I just you know, throw gas on the fire and cultivating that healthy relationship? I think that elders need to be always learning in this. How can we do a good job in our body to make relationships better? I like that idea of this disciplined and holy in their own lives, which then affects the relationships around them. So they're, they have good character. They are good in relationships with others, and they use power well. And we don't like to talk about power a whole lot in church, but a, an elder or pastor has a positional power in that, in that environment, and, they, and we have to steward that well. They have to steward that well. 
Um, good elders would be people that empower others. And my one of my favorite passages on like the the um, the job of an elder is um, in Ephesians four thirteen, where it says Christ gave himself the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the people for works of service. So the body would be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So that power is temporary as an elder or leader in the church, and it's to build up the body, that empowering others. Power multiplies. It doesn't just concede and or, uh, to try and conceal that power. You can see this here, that they serve the body. They're not trying to build up their own ego. In verse 7, they are not overbearing. They're not quick-tempered. They are not given to drunkenness. They're not violent. They're not pursuing dishonest gain. All of those things say, this is a me-first world, and I don't care what you, what's good for you. I just care for what's good for me. Right? You can't be a bully, a manipulative person, argumentative or challenging, and be a leader in the church. And we w- don't want those people to be leaders in the church. We want kind, gentle, patient people. We don't want people who might just be able to preach well or lead Bible studies, but then they fly off the handle when something discourages them. We want gentle, kind leadership in the body. And ultimately, that gives God glory, right? That's why Paul is saying all of these things. So up to this point, Paul is really just talking a lot about character. But there's one thing that he does mention here that is a skill that I think is both a gift and can be learned, which is to be a Bible-centered leader. And he says this in the last verse here, verse 9, that the leader, the elder, should hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so he can encourage others by sound doctrine and how to refute it. So it's this idea of a leader, of the elder being a person who clings to the gospel, who loves it, who studies it, who wants to understand it more. And this, this does present the only difference we see in the scripture between a, a deacon and elder and something that is a must in the church, um, that the elder is someone who is able to teach what the scriptures say. You, you don't think... Gee, I don't know what they think about the gospel. You know it says that they firmly cling to it. They hold to it. They, it's this sound doctrine. That word's repeated four times in this, in this short book here. That sound, this pure, incorruptible doctrine that they hold to. Now, now, this could be discouraging if you think, well, I'm not seminary educated. I, don't, I didn't go to a Bible college well, that's okay. That's not what Paul is saying, that this is a requirement. But it does show that you need to be a person who regularly studies the Word. You, you uh, know the broad themes of Scripture, what the Bible is talking about. And it's okay to say, you know, i got to look that up. I don't understand that right now. But you do follow through on that, and then you know how to teach it. And this is why I'm a big advocate of the, the elders in churches or leaders of groups, like, actually taking the time to get trained in some teaching skills. And I don't know the budget of New Village, but even saying, hey, elders, we want you to, to know how to teach well. Like, we want you to take a course, go to a conference, be skilled in this more. 
And so this is always something we can improve in and understand more of. So when you look at these qualifications, you might think, oh man, who, who's going to fulfill that? That's quite a tall order. But Paul obviously is saying that they're fi- they, they can be fulfilled, right? Why would Paul send Titus out to do something that wouldn't be filled? It, it, Paul was already doing that in his ministry in Acts, where we see he was appointing elders. And you look at this and you might think, I certainly can't do that. Right. Sometimes you get a job description. You think, uh, is that a job for one person or like three perfect people? I recently had to interview for a job back in our host country. And Amber and I were praying about it and thinking it was like this is this is probably for like three full time people to do this job. I don't know how we can do it. We did say no to it. Um, but that's what you can feel as you read this. But I really do believe that if we are wrestling and putting ourselves before the Lord, there can be qualified people to do this, to fulfill this. And you might think, man, why would I want to do that? It seems like being an elder is a difficult job, is a job that um, that's not for the faint of heart. And that's true. But there is such blessing in seeing people progress in their faith with Christ or come to know him for the first time. And so I'd encourage you, if you Uh, are looking at this, and you're a man in here, I'd really encourage you to strive for these things and for everyone to look at this passage and say, hey, what is it that I need to grow in? I need to grow in maybe being more self-controlled or not quick-tempered or not violent or having too many drinks that could be in that category. But as we look at this, we think of the bigger picture Paul is telling Titus There's believers that are out there, and he wants them to have solid leadership. Paul, just going back to the the introduction, Paul is confident of this eternal hope that he has in Christ, and he wants others to have it. He doesn't want those churches to just die out and dwindle. He wants there to be good and solid leadership. And so I want to just even take take a moment. Let's just pray in our hearts silently for this church or for if you're visiting uh, for your church that you're a part of that there would be solid leaders that love the lord that want others to know him and that even god would maybe purge churches that are that are that have men that are not qualified in that position Uh, we were a part of a church years ago that there no one knew but an elder was living in sin and it got revealed and and it actually did a great thing for the church and that person um, didn't walk away from the faith. They ended up getting counseling, and they're still now serving. And they went through a, a major restoration process and are still serving. So we do want healthy leaders. We want God's name to be honored. So let's take a minute to just pray, um, and then I'll close us afterwards. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, um, I just thank you for the gospel, for the hope that you give to us, Lord. I pray for those here who are not, um, that, that need to live their lives according to it, which we all do, Lord, that you would convict us of sin in that area. We pray for this church. We pray for good, solid leadership here, not just to um, make the church function here, but to really 
grow the the spiritual lives of people here as well as give it a good reputation in the community lord and i pray for the the future person who will be the the shepherd of this body that you would uh, bring to this body such a person that fulfills these very um, very well lord and and show us lord this week where we need to grow in these characteristics these qualities lord god and amen just one final word in the bulletin just there's a a short half sheet of uh, paper that has just a little summary of the teaching we're going to try and do that in the next few weeks and some questions for you to meditate and contemplate this week about this passage thank you